It's that time again. You go beyond the jive. Join our hosts, John Swan and Natalie B. Brave the sting of beekeeping to reap the sweet rewards. All you hive jive junkies out there, this is the hive jive. Uh, let's get everything kicked off for everybody this morning and uh, welcome to everybody who is listening to this via just the audio version. I will give a disclaimer here really quick that just because I wanted to see what it would do. Um, the professional studio mic has all kinds of internal settings on the soundboard mm-hmm. and I have turned them all off because I'm curious what it's going to do sound wise in zoom. Um, with them all on, when we record through our regular audio podcast system for Podbean, when we do like the Podbean live system, or when I record directly into the studio system, it sounds amazing. But on zoom, I've noticed that it actually takes some of the higher register out of my end on the mic. And so that it makes it a little bit deeper and a little bit more, not muffled, but kind of a little bit. So Um, I've turned them off just so we could do this recording to go through and see how this will turn out. So if the sound quality is like radically different, that would be why I'm playing with things. And unfortunately we don't get to know the outcome until it's too late. That's right. <laughs> so, uh, but today, you sound great to me. well, so, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. Natalie, you always <laughs> sound great to me as well. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> right. Exactly. Cheers. I still have to take the tea bag out of mine. Um, <laughs> So today we are going to be talking about B schools and B education, and this can run the gamut of, I'm just getting started and, you know, I need some beginner education, like all of the, the pre beekeeping one-on-one kind of things, but it can go all the way up to continuing education for even us master beekeepers and going out there and learning the latest research and things along those lines. But The catch with that, though, is how do you know that you're finding the quality schooling that you need and not arbitrarily watching a jovial person on Instagram or YouTube who (laughs) may be very entertaining to watch, but maybe not giving you the best information or the most accurate or even scientific information out there. So, uh, This doesn't necessarily apply to a whole lot of our patrons. Um, Our patrons here on Patreon are spread clear across the world. And, you know, the the event that I'm getting ready to mention is uh, very local. (laughs) So the Texas Beekeepers Association is doing their first in-person meeting. It's going to be their annual convention, which is also sometimes called their fall or winter convention. And it is going to be held in Galveston, Texas at Moody Gardens, which in and of itself is an amazing venue. There's three or four separate pyramids out there that all have like different learning and education and activity centers in them. And it's like, it's kind of like a theme park, but geared more towards education. So it's really cool. And that will be happening this uh, just in like three weeks from now, two weeks, maybe by the time this airs, So it's going to be Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, November 5th, 6th, and 7th. And this is kind of what's prompted the the whole concept, though, is because we've been doing a lot of talking amongst ourselves, you know, about planning for the convention and things like that. And 
it's a good topic for everybody out there to have because you're listening to the podcast and that's a lot of entertainment and a lot of good information. And we try to make it as diverse as you can. Uh, you come on here and you listen to the beekeeper chats with Natalie and I, and you get more in-depth information where you actually have two comparatively equal intellectual backgrounds on beekeeping instead of a beginner novice learning versus the the person teaching you actually get more of a conversation on pros and cons and ideas and concepts that aren't necessarily all just based on theories and and whatnot so you've got that and that's a good start but what else can you do to get your education especially in times of covid this kind of changed everything up a lot but it also opened up the world to things that were a little bit more accessible. So for instance, Natalie, you started doing the World Bee Day mm -hmm. and conveniently due to COVID and everything else, it was all broadcast virtually. So anybody in the world could actually attend your World Bee Day seminars and get access to all these amazing speakers. So that's one perfect avenue, um, but there can be some pitfalls. So we're just going to talk about this as a kind of a, a high level discussion. We are not gonna, other than I did, obviously I mentioned the, the Texas Beekeepers Convention only because it was a relevant example, um, but we're not necessarily gonna go through and advocate for or against any specific institutions mm -hmm. or individuals. We just wanna give you some things to maybe use for critical thinking in your decision-making on what may or may not be the best route to take. That's and with right. that, I'm going to drink some tea and let you talk. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> well, to go back to the World Bee Day, what I was going to say is that when, um, <clears throat> before COVID, a lot of the schools were uh, used as fundraiser for the local clubs. That's what it is, right? For the most part. And all of them were in person. You had to go physically and attend all the tracks and you could not divide yourself through the different uh, presenters because usually you have anywhere from one to five presenters uh, talking at the same time in the same same time slot. So you'd have to um, either divide and conquer and, and organize with somebody else to try to get, you know, um, <clears throat> the content of each of them if you were interested in all of that content. As a club leader, I was very much interested in all the content because I was trying to hunt for my own speakers and I was trying to find, you know, good quality um, content and speakers. And so I ended up having to, uh, my, my strategy was to bring a couple camera, a couple laptops and just kind of scatter them through the rooms and run around between all the sessions as fast as I could and hoping that it would record properly. The computer would not die. The battery on the camera would not die. The sound was okay. And it was just catastrophically, you know, miserable. Well, and what it also did for you is it actually made it to where you didn't really get to hear anybody live exactly. and you were spending mm -hmm. all your time trying to keep up with the technology so exactly. that you could try to have that as an archive and share it and yes. ended up doing you a disservice as well, because now you're more focused on, Oh, this isn't working or this needs to do this, or I got to go Absolutely. check on that room. And you don't even get to appreciate the presenters that you were going it. to. I was miserable. And, but the alternative was I was missing all those other cool presentations so I think that's one of the drawbacks, the only drawbacks I see to those big conventions. And that's why I created the World Bee Day webinar at a time where I was like, well, how do I launch a bee school, especially in a time of pandemic with limited means? And I came up with that concept when actually that was in 2020 and very few 
um, the, at the time the, the online Zoom was just taking off. There was not a whole lot of people doing it and especially not at that scale. And so I found that it was a great way to have up to, you know, how many, however many speakers you want, you just put them back to back, you record the event, and then you can use it as a fundraiser because anybody all over the world in the United States, especially can access that content. And if they're not there live, which that's a long event, that's 12 hours. That's the other aspect of things. When you're going to be school, it takes a long time. It takes the entire day at the very minimum. Um, you could just kind of sit back and watch the parts that you were looking for and then watch the race later because it was recorded. So that yeah. also allowed me to invite speakers from all over the country, even Europe. And, and you didn't I, have to pay airfare or hotel exactly, or any of the other travel expenses. <laughs> exactly. So it was a lot cheaper and had the potential to, to um, generate almost as many funds when all is said and done because I didn't have to pay for the hotel. I didn't pay, I have to pay for the facilities. I didn't have to pay for a lot of the marketing, the swag that, you know, I didn't have to rely on volunteers. I did it all by myself. So that's the, you know, the new version of the B school kind of at the extreme is completely virtual. And then you have completely in person and both have their advantages because it's fantastic. I think to go to a, a, a in-person B school and not only, network with all the other beekeepers that are out there, um, see things that you wouldn't have seen or heard presentations you wouldn't have heard otherwise, um, watch the equipment, you know, the vendors and, and potentially buy some gear and um, participate in like uh, raffles and things like that. So it's an exciting venue to go to a bee school. It is. But it's also, if you've never been to a large one, you should definitely try to find like most states have a state association and most mm -hmm. states have some sort of large event that they try to put on once a year. And if you've only been experienced with your local city or county club and you know all those people and, you know, there's like 15 to 20 core members that come every single meeting. And, and you know, even though you might have a membership of 100, you know, you don't see all those people every time and stuff. But I mean, that's one thing, but when you leave and you go to like the larger state association type thing, and you find that there is, you know, hundreds of people there and you can network with them and they're, they're all various generations and you get all this different aspect from the brand new young beekeeper. That's so enthused to the, the couple that's been keeping bees for 50 years, you know, and they're, they're retired and, and they're still doing it or whatever, but you do get to see all these new cool gadgets that the vendors bring. You get to see some things that you would not ever necessarily have been exposed to exactly. otherwise. And that's an amazing experience in and of itself, but you're right on the tracks. So it's a, it's a pro and a con. It's really cool. If you're definitely when you're first starting, you get there and you get to choose your own adventure. So you get to go and you get to say, okay, so every hour there are four to six presentations and I get to choose which of those four to six presentations I want to go to that hour. And then the next hour, there's a whole nother slew and then it just keeps going for that entire day. And then you also, you get like keynote presentations where you have this amazing world renowned speaker that will come in and teach and everybody gets to go to that. So you, you know, you don't miss out on that, but you get to go and hear these other things. But that also means you're picking one course out of four to six. So you're missing out on, you know, three or four or five other courses in there that may have been very interesting and you may not necessarily get to see them or hear them. And that's where the concept of like the virtual world B-Day 
became very popular. And so, of course, I took it and stole it. And uh, oh, yeah, when, for the last, com- last yeah, convention. For, yes, well, for the, the summer clinic, um, the summer clinic like, hmm. in 2020 was going to be, well, I, I even, I called Natalie like 12 times. I was like, <laughs> okay, so how did you do this? And and what program did you use? And how did you get the videos? And like, yeah, so I was, I was scrambling. I super simple, right? Yeah, I it mean, works. All I did is a 12 hour long Zoom conference. <laughs> Basically, yeah, it's a, you, you switch Zoom over to like a webinar instead of a meeting. And no, I didn't. I do. Well, <laughs> then, I, yes, then I yes. can control everybody else. <laughs> I can make sure that uh, little John Doe doesn't jump in there and then yes, interrupt the meeting or anything. Yeah. yeah. So, but it, it ends up actually, it takes away some of those other aspects. You don't get that in person, the networking, the feel, the awe that you have Absolutely. when you walk into something. You don't get to see the vendors and those aspects. But on the flip side, you do actually get access to all of these other things that you would have missed out on. And the way that, you know, you had yours designed and the way that I kind of mimicked the one, um, cause so like COVID is obviously what, what drove most of this, right. everybody had to pivot and we had live events already set up with speakers and everything ready to go for the summer clinic. And then also for the convention. And we had to start canceling things. And then we were like, well, what do we do? Cause we don't know how long this is going to last. And I knew that you had done that world B day. So I was like, all right, let me talk to Natalie and let me see how this works. And it did end up being perfect because again, you do have speakers from everybody everywhere. We were able to still get our main speakers in. So you're getting these quality speakers, but it was actually more advantageous because you're just paying for, you know, like a one-off zoom webinar or a zoom platform. And they don't charge as much. You're, yeah. They cut their fees. You're not, you're not reimbursing for airfare and hotel right. and all that stuff. You're not paying a meal per diem. Um, so there was huge advantageous, huge advantages for associations or clubs or individuals that were wanting to host these types of things. And then we go and we archive all that. And you then with the purchase of the ticket to get into the event, whereas in the live event, it's a one and done. And when you leave, whatever notes you took or pictures you took, that's all you have to take with you afterwards. And in the virtual one with your ticket, you then get access to the archive. And if you want to watch, like, say you had three people that you were really keen on watching, well, you can go watch those immediately that day. And then the other 50 presentations that may be available you can watch them at your own leisure, one at a day, you know, one a month, whatever, it doesn't matter. You've got access to it. Right. So it was actually a, a wonderful concept and I'm so glad that you did it and that it worked and that I was able to steal it. Um, <laughs> and I'm not saying that we are alone because everywhere all across the country, this is it what everybody was doing. Up. Yes, yeah, exactly. Everybody was trying to figure out like how to get this to go. So the benefit of this though, <laughs> it, it affected all levels of beekeeping. So for instance, here in Austin, there are there is the Travis County Beekeepers Association, which is the county proper for Austin. Then there's the Hayes County Beekeepers Association, which is just adjacent to Austin. There's the Austin Area Beekeepers Association, which kind of houses North Austin. And then if you get a little bit outside of that, you've got San Marcos, you've got Williamson the county. Williamson County just north. So San Marcos, south of Austin, Williamson County, north of Austin. You've got a what is that one that's uh, Elgin? Elgin? You've got an Elgin City Council, like little beekeepers association there. So literally within a stone's throw of Austin, and this is not necessarily the case yeah. everywhere, but there you can throw a rock and you can hit a beekeeper club somewhere. Well, maybe you live in one of the further outreaches of Texas and your local area doesn't have a club meeting, but you're always hearing about the amazing speakers that Natalie has in Hayes County. Yes. Well, when everything went virtual, 
now you can actually log into that meeting and you can watch that meeting virtually. So it actually opened it up to all of these people that didn't have an association or their closest association was two hours away. Now they've got access to that type of education and they can go through and listen that way. And that's helped as well. So how do you go through then, Natalie? And now that everybody has access to this kind of stuff, now you've got this influx of all this information coming in. So how do you go through and start trying to disseminate what is actually quality information for you and what is all the noise and fluff that, that you need to filter through? Well, and it goes both ways. It goes both as a, as a listener and as a person that's selecting speakers. You have to kind of figure out who's legit and who's got good presentations and quality content. So, for example, um, I think it, 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 it takes researching a little bit the subjects and the, the speakers especially and understanding what the caliber is and how legit they are and how good of presenters they are. You can be really good at your subject top, uh, matter, but you might not be a very good presenter. So there's that as well. What I really, really enjoyed was that um, we get people now at HCBA that are dialing in from California every month, right? So we get people from Canada that are joining us and it's really the best thing. Um, the, the recordings are really good and it, it helps um, going back to it. We have like a members content library um, of videos from the meetings as well because we record every single one of them. The other thing that's really good and I, I'm not directly answering your question because to be honest with you, I don't remember it really well, <laughs> but <laughs> he's laughing. <laughs> But um, what I would say is that when you're organizing an online event, it's really easy to, to make it as a registration kind of a thing. So you get also a mailing list. So you get to send newsletters and, and just kind of include people and um, have a wider audience that you can um, inform about upcoming things. The other thing is with the recorded, I want to go back to the World Be Day webinar being recorded, it's still on the webpage and anybody can still buy it. So here's how we organized it because it's really a fundraiser for the club. You get to either become a club member and have access to the past two years for the, the amazingly low sum of 20 bucks a year, let's say, right? You can do that with your clubs. And that's kind of why I'm talking about this as fundraisers. You can organize online events and then you put them on your website and recordings can be accessed either via the members content only, or you can still buy it if you don't want to become a, a member. <clears throat> so there's a couple of things. You can make that a recurring revenue that can last at eternum, at perpetuity, right? So you can just kind of repeat itself. Um, the, where, where is that going? What was the question again? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, and you started off, you started off, you kind of hit hit a few points of it. So the question was like, now that everything is virtual and there's all these incoming sources that you can choose from, how do you go through and determine what is a quality source and start oh. separating out quality material from all the fluff and everything else? And so like when you said going through and doing the research, you know, that's that's absolutely something right there. So if let's say you uh, live in a hole and you've mm -hmm. never heard of Thomas Seeley, which if you <laughs> haven't heard of Thomas Seeley and you have listened to You're this podcast <laughs> in entirety, you haven't actually been listening to this podcast. Um, so for instance, say that there's going to be a, uh, a, a new presentation coming up and it's either offered through your local association or it's, it's somewhere online that you found and you can go buy a ticket and you go and you look at the speakers and it's 
John Doe, Jane Doe, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. And you, you look all those people up and you, you know, you find, okay, well, they're beekeepers, but I don't really see any much else out there about them exactly. or, or they are Instagram and or YouTube stars. Oh, and, I have something to say about that, but just keep on going. No, I mean, go ahead, insert it if you want to. And then I can, I can pick up after the fact. I have fallen for the Instagram celebrity speaker, assuming that it was going to be necessarily, you know, somebody that's very qualified and that's going to present really well. And I was disappointed, honestly, to yeah. be, to be honest with you. I don't, so that's something to be careful about when you're, you've got people that have, you know, I don't know how many thousands of followers on Instagram. Uh, they're very popular and known in the world of beekeeping because they're content creators. Right. They, they are attractive. They make yes. their, their images and their <laughs> videos attractive and, or they are various eccentric and that's the yes. allure to it as well. So, so think about all of the just crazy bass, awkward off the wall things that Ken would say mm-hmm. in the, in the, the first two years or three years of the podcast, right? Everybody loves Ken because he is so random, but he's also <laughs> a ball of fun. But that man still texts me. He texted me yesterday and wanted to know um, when you're supposed to feed two to one sugar syrup. So if you went to a presentation that was all given by Ken, even though Ken has been involved in this for three years, what is the quality of the information that you're going to be getting? And you would be entertained. Yeah, you would be entertained. But but would everything that you hear be accurate? You know, and and would it be actually something that you could do? So that's kind of one of the the drawbacks or fallbacks to the potential online star who's famous for being famous or famous for looking pretty or doing crazy bizarre things. It doesn't mean that they really have the knowledge and education behind that. Um, but if you looked up a speaker like Tom Seeley. And you found, wow, he's got, you know, multiple doctoral degrees and he's done tons of different research projects and he's a a well-published author and he has like five top best-selling books on bees and like all these types of things. Then you're like, oh, okay, now this person might have something to say that could be interesting. And and I want to look into that. Um, One of the other ways that I would say that you can go through and kind of a little bit more easily know that it's going to be a bit more quality is when some of the actual universities are putting on something. And recently because of COVID, there was this amazing thing where you had, it was either five or seven different universities from across the, the United States who all banded together. And every month they put on a free presentation And it rotated around through the different universities. And it was all headed by people that were the heads of the departments or, um, you know, leaders in the research for a specific division. So, you know, right then, if it is sponsored by the university and it is their doctoral program that's actually presenting it or the head of a department, it's going to be vetted. It's going to be good information for you to actually have. So that's another way that you can go through and kind of help, you know, dig through the weeds to find the flower that, that is actually legit yeah. that you want to have there for that education purpose. That kind of brings me to a subject, you know, theory versus practice and expertise, experience uh, over knowledge in, in how they interact. So what I mean by that is that sometimes you'll have beekeepers that are super experienced and they're very knowledgeable 
um, but they're not really good presenters or they don't have the book knowledge. They have mostly the the practice in the field, which is super valuable. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, we have to be patient with people that have a great degree of expertise that are presenting that are not necessarily used to the presentation part of things. Right. But then also you got to remember that um, you also have beekeepers that have been doing this forever and that are, have a huge following and they're not necessarily knowledgeable right. uh, about the theory or some of it. They've been doing it for a long time. They're repeating the same practices that they've been around. A lot of them are from commercial beekeepers. Uh, they don't necessarily apply to everybody as a beekeeper because everybody's goals are different. And so I think that the best um, presentations that I've ever heard are the ones that are more neutral, more um, just kind of, uh, you know, there's tips and tricks that are really good, but then knowing the theory with it makes the combination lethal. It's awesome when you have both at the same time. Yes, absolutely. And, and the pitfall to some of those people that have been say they, and, and I'm, I'm literally not trying to insult everybody or anything <laughs> like that. So, um, so, you know, for instance, Jacob, you have a YouTube channel. I'm not saying that everybody on YouTube is the devil, but a lot of people out there are, and you know that, <laughs> and, and, yes. and we all, you know, we all understand the side joke there and the true individuals that we're talking about. And when I say things like Instagram, everybody knows exactly who I'm taking, talking about. If I said well, TikTok, there would be people, no question. Not just one. Right, yeah, right, right. But I'm, you're right. But I'm not also saying that everybody on there is that way. Yes. For the presentation aspect of things, though, you can have in some instances, and I've ran across some of these individuals where they have, they are like a third or fourth or fifth generation beekeeper. And yes, they have a ton of experience because they literally grew up in generations of this. But sometimes when you ask them, why do you do this? The answer is because it's what we've always done. Exactly. And there's no actual, well, because we've went through and we looked at it and we noticed if we did this, the bees would respond this way. And it was more advantageous for us versus when we did the other. It's just because that's how it's always been. And because is not a good answer. You know, there has to be something that follows because that has some substance to it to make it valuable. And some of the other things that I have found in person is we had a gentleman and I, I won't, I won't say his name. Um, he is a very well-known, very established, educational. I, I don't, I, again, I'm not going to go off into the details of that, but let's just say he knows his stuff, right? Mm -hmm. But when you come to some of these events, sometimes the event itself wants to pigeonhole you into certain things. And so he was doing a keynote presentation and the keynote presentation was a little bit off only because he didn't know anything about the state that he was in oh, and yeah, he was trying to draw some parallels, but they, they were falling short. And so he had, he had things in there to try to get some humor going and it just wasn't, wasn't connecting or clicking. The other part of it though, was that he had three other presentations lined up that were breakout sessions after that. Mm -hmm. Les and I went to all of them and less Crowder. Crowder. Yeah. Yay. Um, so we each went to the different presentations because that was the whole point. We came to that conference to see this gentleman this person. And then we go, so we, we watched the keynote and we're like, well, okay. I mean, there was some good points there, but, but it, it was almost like the books, it all applied to the North and it didn't have anything to do with Southern Texas. You didn't get as much as you wanted out of it. Right. So then we go to the breakout sessions and we're like, okay, so these will be better. These are a little bit more specific, you know, specialized. The first presentation, 
literally both of us were like, you just got to stay awake. You just got to keep your eyes open. Like he was so not into it. And you could tell it wasn't something that interested him. He, he, he wasn't even really familiar with the presentation that he was giving. Then second presentation, kind of the same way. Third presentation was about apotherapy. And apparently that is his passion. And all of a sudden this individual who had been up there going, well, and I mean, I guess, oh yeah, this over here, he was like, okay, so you can do this and blah, blah, blah. And this does this and this, oh, this is my most favorite thing. And he's like all over the room and he's very energetic and emphatic and his arms are flailing. And like, (laughs) I was taking notes, man. I was taking notes. I had page after page after page of notes. And they were the only notes that I took through that entire conference. But that was his passion. And that's why all of a sudden he shined in that moment. And it wasn't because he doesn't have the knowledge about the other things. It was because he didn't really want to teach those things. They weren't his specialty, but the convention or the event wanted him to present those things. So he was trying to fill a niche for them, but it wasn't really his area. And sometimes that can make a big difference. And, And in reality, He's still a phenomenal speaker. He was just out of his element. And then he started feeling self-conscious about it. I've also come across individuals like, so you were talking about the world smart being out there, getting your street smarts and your B smarts from actual hands-on learning. Mm -hmm. You've got the opposite side of that. You've got individuals that are 1000% book smart and have very little to no physical experience with the process. And I've been in presentations with those where I thoroughly look up to this one specific individual, but found myself correcting him or adding in little things when he would say, well, they never. And I was like, Mm. oh, actually, we probably shouldn't say never because I myself have physically (laughs) experienced it in person. And I know for a fact it absolutely can happen, you know, and that's the difference between that, that real world experience versus the book world experience. So there's lots of different ways of that, you know, to, to where that can kind of be a plus and a minus in there, but that's why you've got to be a little more discerning and, and use critical thinking when making these decisions about what is the best information for me. And just because you get information, we've talked about this in some of our other chats, doesn't mean that the information is wrong, but it may not be valid for your specific circumstance and where you're at. Exactly. Or your goals. Let's be honest with you. So that's the whole thing about books and presenters and research. There's a lot of things that um, is applicable to commercial beekeeping. And that's fine because that's the vast majority of the financial economic interest there. So that's that's understandable. Um, But you end up with things that don't necessarily apply to the goals of a backyard beekeeper which is the vast majority of beekeepers. So that's funny because the, the, the commercial beekeepers are about 1% of the number of beekeepers, but they own about 90 something percent of the beehives, the colonies. And the backyard beekeepers are 95% plus of the total of the beekeepers, but they don't own as many colonies because they only have a handful up to, you know, 30 maybe or whatever. So they're, they're not doing things the same way and their goals are different. The other thing I would say is that researchers, especially that do presentations uh, about their research, about findings are very interesting 
but very often you'll find they're not actually real beekeepers. And that's where people uh, are missing to understand what they're doing is more in a vacuum in a um, lab setting. And right. they are using bees that are not necessarily the bees that are available to everybody because they get donated to them. They're not necessarily the best quality bees. Uh, they're not necessarily kept the way anybody would be keeping the bees because they don't necessarily know how to. Um, <clears throat> and then you have to keep that in mind. The The other thing is that a lot of the, uh, advice that's given, we talked about it, is just not geared to uh, the regional, um, you know, constraints of your your area, and they're not necessarily applicable to your style or your goals of beekeeping, right? A lot of it is geared towards commercial beekeepers. A lot of the books are basically geared towards northern commercial beekeepers. Yep. That's, that's something to keep in mind. Nobody ever tells you that, right? So uh, it's very important to remember and when it comes to book smart, that's also the same thing. A lot oh. of the research out there, by the way, is, um, is is funded. You need to follow the money. We've talked about it on many occasions. You need to follow the money. A lot of that, um, when you're funded by either donors that are corporate or even by associations, and the motive is looking at specific things, that research might actually by nature be slightly biased from the get-go and their interpretation of it is very often biased as well. Um, and that goes with, for the um, university researchers very often, actually. I like what they, do, what they present. I like the quality of the content. I don't always agree with their, the, the objectivity of their research or when it comes to what backyard beekeepers do. And, and I'm big on backyard beekeepers. So that's kind of why I'm saying that, but. Well, so here's, this is a, this is a little bit off of the subject, but kind of not. And this was something that just cracked me up yesterday. I was in a board meeting and my phone went off and I looked at it and it was a email contact request that came in to the Texas State Beekeepers Association. And the question was um, B, like B genetics or B lineages. And the question was, what type of B is best for Wisconsin? And oh, I laughed and laughed and laughed because I was like, why are you sending a message to <laughs> Texas asking Texas what is the best B for Wisconsin? You need to be asking Wisconsin what is the best B for Wisconsin, yeah. not Texas? We're as far removed from Wisconsin as you can get. <laughs> this being said, I have the answer. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I mean, but your local nut. Your exactly. Local, whatever, nut even. whatever is up there in Wisconsin yeah. is the best B for Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. And the, the only reason I wanted to bring that up is because that's a good parallel with the whole like knowing your information mm -hmm. and knowing where it's coming from don't go to a commercial beekeeper. Like if you live in Texas, you're not going to go ask a commercial beekeeper from Massachusetts what the best advice is on overwintering your bees in Texas and vice versa. You're not going to ask somebody in Texas what the best, you know, methods of overwintering your bees up in say Montana, you know, it's, that's not how you do it because down here, the further South you get, the more it's like, well, you don't really need to wrap them and they, they right. barely need 40 pounds of honey. And you know, right. it's like, they're fine. They, the average temperature is 60 degrees or higher in the winter. They're right. flying every single day, you know, Usually and there's forage out there. Yeah. There's, there's things that make pollen and nectar that you would, you know, it's all like all year round, but up there, it's not the same way. You know, maybe they need a hundred pounds of honey and they need like, 
tar paper and insulation and more tar paper. Like you don't know. So you don't, don't ask out of context because then you're setting yourself up for potential failure and bad information as well. And that's the same concept as when you're looking for this education aspect and teaching, you have to be mindful Exactly. Uh, where the information's coming from. (laughs) Well, the flip side of it is when you're listening in, when you personally are dialing into um, online uh, beekeeping meetings from all over the country that are like in an opposite state or a completely different area, um, you need to keep in mind that those question and answers that take place and maybe potentially some of the topics are not necessarily applicable to where you are either. Right. So that's something to keep in mind. Like um, a lot of the questions are, should I feed? Should I do this? Remember that all beekeeping is hyper local to start with. So um, even in your own state, that that uh, those answers might not necessarily apply to your micro area. So just keep that in mind. Um, Anybody that gives you recipes that are like this should be this way. And that should be done on this schedule. And you should always do this. Always and never, like you said, are not words that you should be adopting when it comes to beekeeping. I wanted to go back to what you were saying about that never. Uh, some of the myths that are repeated over and over. There's only one queen in the colony. That's not true. Uh, very often every year, you get for a certain period of time two uh, queens, uh, up to 70% of the cases because the mother daughter, um, they lay eggs together before the mother actually ends up leaving for a while, or when she, especially when she's superseded, uh, they let her keep laying for a while longer to try to boost the colony as an evolutionary advantage, right? It's, it's something that if they're superseding her, there's a reason for that. The colony is weaker, there's something that's not working. So they'll allow her to keep laying for a while along with her daughter so that they make up their numbers faster. So there's one thing. You always also hear um, the, the queens, they never take care of themselves. The bees, the worker bees, they will do it. Queen cannot feed herself. She cannot, she cannot feed, feed herself. herself. Yeah. The, yeah. The drones cannot feed themselves. That's not true. Um, My favorite memory in beekeeping is watching a virgin queen just emerge and run all over the comb and shove her head in a cell of nectar and take long sips of nectar until she's like, I feel better. Now I'm just going to go and do my thing. Yeah. But so that's not true. They can if they have to. Yeah. They don't have the the mouth parts and the glands to produce the royal jelly type food that they feed on but they absolutely have a tongue and a proboscis and they can yes, drink and they can absolutely. eat and they will, you know, they're not going to chew on the sugar. Like if you put yeah. the the queen cage and you put the queen in there and you put the sugar in there, she's not going to chew she on the sugar. The workers will chew and lick on the sugar and then they'll turn around and feed the queen. But if you put a drop of water up there and she's thirsty, she will absolutely she will push everybody out of her way and she will drink <laughs> that drop of water. She's pretty, she's pretty actually a uh, very bullying when it comes yeah, to that. She's she, like, I'm she's, going, this is she my She throws thing. her weight around, really. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So that's funny, but there's a lot of things like that, right? They, you know, don't, don't, anybody that tells you always or never, just question that. You should always question and have a good skeptical uh, thought process when it comes to any advice you get into beekeeping, for sure. And especially if you're trying to go, and that's my, my own sub box, you know that. If you're trying to go treatment-free or not use any chemicals, you should question absolutely a whole lot of the advice that's out there because most of it is for people that treat. And it's also geared towards um, breeds or subspecies of bees or bees that have been kept with treatments. So the best thing you can do is to, to, if if you're going to go treatment free, that's what I tell people, don't buy treated bee. 
treat the bees. That's just the biggest thing you can do because you're going to take a, a, a genetic that's not necessarily resilient on its own that needs that medication on a regular basis. And you're going to just cut off that medication that it needs to survive. And, and so you're going to expose yourself to problems. So that's my big thing. The thing I wanted to mention also, John, have you heard of Apimondia? I, yes. I don't know how you yeah, that's the that's like um, that's the world version of a beekeeper conference. So here in the United States, we have the American Bee Federation, and that's mm -hmm. kind of like the biggest it gets for the United States. Apimondia is the same concept for the world. And yeah. you get these people from all over the place that, you know, like. People from Italy will blow your mind. People from Slovenia will blow your mind. Um, you know, like it, there's there's a, a a level of exposure that you could not even dream of that happens whenever you go to something like that. Mm -hmm. But it, yeah, it's a huge deal. I've wanted to go when they were in Canada last year. Was it no 2019? Yeah, and I just couldn't because I was in Africa. And I'm like, I'm dying to go. But right now, I think the the upcoming one's going to be in Russia. And then yeah. I, I would like for it to come back to the American It needs, needs to get a little bit closer. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. No, that, that was actually, that was one of those like perfect opportunities where it only comes around maybe once every 10 years where it's close enough that right. it makes it even possibly feasible for most of us to get there, right. you know, buying a ticket up to Canada and, and staying for a little while or heaven forbid, if it ever happens to hit in the United States, you know, mm. going there is going to be way easier than, yeah, going to Africa or going to Russia or China. Yeah. Um, although if it, if it, you know, like we totally want to go to Australia. So if it ever hit yeah, Australia, so that could be an excuse. Go, right? <laughs> that would be the best excuse in the world. That'd be an <laughs> We're excuse. doing research for the club. <laughs> That's right. Right. That's a podcast. The, the yeah. podcast, we've, we've got to go down there and interview <laughs> some of our, That's uh, <laughs> right. We've got to go interview some of our listeners down under. They are the, the number two country that listens to the show. So we've yes. got to go check them out, say hi, show the love. Happen to stop by Apamundia, whatever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, that's just kind of, oh, that's a dream come true if we can do that. I would love if they did a little bit of uh, online version of it, like have an um, in-person track and um, online virtual one, because I would just so be down for that. Yeah. One of the things that you will potentially wind up with there too, though, is translators and subtitles, because mm -hmm. some of these individuals are amazing people, but they do not necessarily speak the language of everybody else. Um, and that's for all across the country. If I went, I'm going to be speaking English and, and, you know, I hope you have somebody that can translate into Russian and whatever, cause I right. can't. Um, and you're going to have presenters that do the same thing. You know, they're going to be yeah. speaking their own native language and there are translators there to go through and kind of help facilitate that and subtitles and such. So, but right. it is, it is an amazing opportunity to meet people that you would otherwise never be exposed to and give you a completely different perspective on the world of beekeeping. That's right. No, I would love to, I, I could potentially keep up with Spanish because I speak quite, I mean, I make mistakes, but I understand it really well. I could keep up with some Russian but at the speed at which they speak and, and uh, the technicality of the presentations, I don't think I would be able to do much of anything. Chinese, same thing. And so, yeah, I'm used to the um, subtitles. Who, who hasn't watched? I mean, I guess a lot of people hasn't watched uh, foreign movies. Yeah. But, you know, I love watching the, the foreign movies and I'm used to the subtitles. So that's fine. As long as the quality of the content is, is excellent, I'm just kind of really um, good with that. So my thing is on subtitled like movies specifically, 
I will always opt not to watch those in the theater mm-hmm. because one, the theater screen is already so big. It's huge. Yeah. And if you're looking at the bottom of the screen, trying to read something, you're, you're missing, missing what's going on. <laughs> I know, I agree. So I yeah. watch it at home. It's on a smaller screen. And if I miss something, I can pause it and go back and rewind and, and try to watch it. So it does make it a little bit more labor intensive, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's definitely worth it for some things for certain. Um, Pan's Labyrinth, for instance, uh, mm-hmm. kind of a supernatural-esque oh, mythological yeah. type mm-hmm. show that was put out, and I'm going to say his name wrong, but uh, Guillermo, Guillermo del Toro. Guillermo del Toro. Guillermo del Toro. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, but yeah, absolutely phenomenal film, but it's all subtitled, and it's it, like it is so worth the watch. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's but that, beautiful. That's I mean, one of those that, you know, like I, I'll, I'll watch it again and again and again, mm-hmm. but I do prefer it, you know, on a smaller screen in that instance. Although beauty wise, you can watch that sucker on a full screen yeah. and not understand a word they say and you're still sitting there in awe. Mesmerized. Yes. Yeah. So uh, anyhow, everyone, hopefully you have learned some ways to figure out how to better learn, <laughs> how to, how to well, choose content that may help you further your education and help weed out some of the noise and find that specific signal that speaks to you and your beekeeping practices. But whatever you do, keep going to those bee schools and those bee meetings, association meetings, and just learn. It, you can reject some of the content that you're, that's not applicable to you and, and just get whatever you can out of the quality content otherwise. That's right, because it doesn't matter if you're learning what you should do or what you should not do. You're still learning Mm -hmm. and being able to develop the critical thinking skills to disseminate what you should do versus what you should not do is extremely important. Um, And then being able to marry all that together and, and compare and contrast and say, you know, this works and this doesn't work, or I've seen this with my own eyes and I know it to be true. So I'm going to temper that with some of this other information. Why did you raise your hand? <laughs> because I've, we forgot to talk about the master beekeeper programs that oh my gosh. those schools. That right? is like, that was like an obvious one, wasn't it? We completely just skipped that. I think, okay. So ultimately, yes, all of these things that we talked about today, 100%, that is how you can find education and stuff like that. But exactly, if you are somebody who just desires to have that really, really in-depth, just drilled into your head over the course of several years, most of the bigger institutions do have some sort of master beekeeper program. Mm -hmm. I am familiar with Texas, Georgia, and Florida. Um, Although there are plenty of them up in the Northern States, I'm just not specifically familiar with them. If you are on that path and that's something that speaks to you, you know, Natalie and I have both gone through the master beekeeper program and Mm -hmm. It is, it is phenomenal. The information that you learn and you learn, you learn about all different things that are also interrelated to the bees. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. you get a little bit into botany and some of this other stuff. So it all is connected and interweaved and interwoven, interwoven in there um, so that (laughs) you you can go through. I told you this is an early morning PJ session. Okay. (laughs) So brain doesn't have to function. Um, (laughs) No. So, but it's all interwoven together and it all is complementary and it kind of works in kismet with each other. So you can totally look into that. Look in, usually it's, it's sort of housed usually in a junk in, um, association with a university. So here in Texas, it's kind of an adjunct or offshoot of Texas A&M and in Georgia, it's an offshoot of the young Harris Institute. So 
find the the association that you are, you know, that's in your state. Um, there are some of them, though, like Georgia. I think you can actually take Georgia's online and not have to be a resident of Georgia. So if you do live in a state that doesn't have one, maybe there's a neighboring state that has an amazing program that you can do remotely and still be able to do it. But absolutely check out the Master Beekeeper programs. Um, we literally would not be here where we are today without That's those types right. of things. So, And even if you don't take the exams, just at the very minimum, if you're somebody that wants to deepen their knowledge and understanding of the superorganism, because there's only so much you can learn with your hands on in the bees. You learn a lot. I mean, don't get me wrong, but you're not necessarily getting all the theory and the research that's gone behind it. There's a book that I, so those reading lists, those book reading lists are very important. Um, but there's one book, if you are to improve your understanding of the superorganism, that I recommend to all beekeepers, absolutely, because it's not written from the perspective of a commercial beekeeper or for the production um, and the exploitation of the animal. It's really based on understanding it. And it's very detailed and very, um, very um, insightful into the world of the bees. It's The Biology of the Honeybee by Winston. That book should be everybody's every beekeeper's Bible when it comes to understanding the superorganism, the biology of the honeybee by Winston. Again, he didn't write it for the purpose of increasing honey production or bee production or manipulating anything. It's not even talking about the bee boxes, Langstroth and the equipment. It's not talking about any of that. However, it will talk absolutely about everything there is to know about the biology of the superorganism. And it will definitely inform the way you keep your bees because you will be better in tune with what the bees do. And as Les Crowder and I, we always say, you have to work with the bees, not against them. If you try to impose anything under the bees, usually it doesn't work. So that book is critical because it will help you be better beekeepers. That's absolutely correct. And that is, uh, it is one of the the amazing things that you can go through and you can find and you're you're going to get their reading lists that they're recommending that you have to get the knowledge from before you go through and take the exams and the exams are also it's not a one and done it is a multi-year process and you like in Texas you spend an entire year working up to your first exam and then you spend an entire year working up to your second exam so you've got a lot of time to go through and do this like self-exploration and learning and and education from it but the reading lists that they recommend even if you're not taking the test go through and pick up some of those books just exactly like you just said they they're phenomenal a lot of them also offer videos that cover very key content from some of the authors of these books where you can go through and watch the video and and get that core information and education there. Mm -hmm. And again, you don't have to sign up, register or pay to take the test to get access to that information. You can just simply go to the website for the master beekeeper program. And it shows you here's the recommended reading list. Here's the recommended videos. Here's the link to the archive and you can go watch them. You know, it's, it's free to the public to go out there and do Yeah. Yeah, It is extremely quality quality content. So if you're looking for curated quality content, that's one way to do it. Again, taking, you know, I'm always like, well, I'll take all this stuff, but I'll leave the treatment uh, because I don't want it. Um, The other thing that I forgot to mention is all the apprenticeships. It's, you don't have that many. So you had a lot, you have to be careful. You have a lot of beekeepers that are like two, three, maybe seven years into it that decide they're going to be teaching beekeeping and they're teaching it. Uh, they, they'll teach you some of the basics, but they don't necessarily have a more 
um, um, wide open perspective when it comes to the, the beekeeping. They don't necessarily have that education that we just talked about. It's all uh, experiential. So, you, you know, there's another option out there and you can look in your state and look around and look for apprenticeships because those will do two things. They'll teach you the th theory and uh, if you're looking for apprenticeships, look for qualified uh, teachers, by the way, that have all that experience, that have that knowledge and that have vetted carefully. Uh, but just kind of keep those in mind because they also allow you to spend a lot of times, uh, time in the beehives, right? The more ex hands-on experience you get, the faster you're gonna learn about the bees and how they work. And so look for things like, you know, um, how to inspect and evaluate a colony, how to uh, combine, how to split, how to potentially do some basic queen rearing, how to potentially do some uh, sugar roll uh, mite counts, some of those things that you don't necessarily do. The, you know, you can get a 101 and a 202 and 303 classes, beekeeping, that's that's great. And they'll give you get you started. But if you're really serious about beekeeping, look for something that's going to take you further over the period of more um, months throughout the year because the beekeeping season it doesn't stop in one weekend you don't you don't get to learn hardly anything honestly so if you're serious just go with something that will teach you over the period of six months to a year through the entire beekeeping cycle and, and just keep that in mind so search, search if you're serious about your beekeeping just look for that kind of program as well as long as it's taught by qualified uh, teachers Yes, uh, absolutely on that one as well. The There was one little point that you made in there that I was going to add a little one extra bonus to is when you're qualifying these individuals that are doing like the apprenticeships and they're, they're teaching or mentoring other people, also look at one, how many hives do they have? Because yes. if they've only ever had one hive period, that they don't have a lot to draw from. But the other thing is look at these styles of hives that they have too, because yes. if they are successfully keeping more than one style of beehive, they're going to have a lot more, exactly you and I both, um, <laughs> they're going to have a lot more experience because now they're showing you that adage that I've always said, which is beekeeping is beekeeping. It yes. doesn't matter if they're in a square, you know, Langstroth box, or if they're in a long horizontal hive or a long lang or a top bar, um, you know, Warre, skeps, whatever, if they can keep the bees alive and do all the management processes successfully with the requirements or restraints of each mm -hmm. style, that is somebody that you're going to be able to learn a lot from versus the individual that just has a single Langstroth. They've always only had one Langstroth hive and that's it. Um, and also at the same time, I can flip that around and say, like, I'm not trying to be, you know, uh, prejudiced. I was trying to think of a clever word for like hive stylist or something, you know, like snob. not trying to be prejudiced you against snob. different hive styles, <laughs> but you could also say the same thing. If, if beekeeper only has a single top bar hive and they've never touched right. a Langstroth hive yeah. and it's just the only top bar they've ever had, it's the same concept. They don't necessarily have the breadth of information that somebody who successfully keeps all different styles will have. So that's another good and point. And to your point, when you hear people tell you, well, and, you know, that's what I hear a lot of is top bar hives are not as good as doing this or that or top bar hives. Is you should never, you should never start with a top don't bar. Listen, it's too complicated. Yeah, exactly. Don't <laughs> yeah. listen to these people because what that means is that they don't know how to keep bees in those other styles of hives right. and they know how to do it only in one style of hives and they're biased. Yep. 
when you are, have found somebody that, like you, John, uh, has kept bees in all kinds of different styles of hives, or Les and I, we, we're doing all kinds, Leyans, Wari, Tabar, Langstrass, Barrel, all kinds of things. Um, you start to understand that it transcends the box itself. Uh, you also understand the pros and cons of each of those, and you do it very objectively. Like I've heard uh, people teaching beekeeping that will tell you, no, no, Tabar hives is not for, you know, it's going to not do what you're looking for. It's lower honey production or all those myths that are repeated again, again, yeah. because they're not familiar with them. They just don't know. So one thing that um, I used to do and for like a top bar perspective is sometimes when people like, I, we'll get a lot of listeners up North. It'll be like, well, I mean, I would love to do that, but you know, you just can't do that up here. People, people tell us we can't do that up here. And I will refer them to things like, uh, I'm going to actually get a, give a plug here. Um, like Melissa's top bar hives, mm -hmm. Melissa's up around like Boston. Like I think she's in Massachusetts, um, or Connecticut. She's up there and she keeps just top bar hives period. And you know what? they survive, they overwinter. And she, you know, she, sometimes she has some that are wrapped. Sometimes she just has a wind block, you know? And yeah. so it is possible. It's all just about your management practices, yeah. preparation, making sure that, you know, you are taking all these things into consideration. So it is yeah. possible. And that's when I came and actually spoke to you guys for the Hayes County in September, mm -hmm. that was one of the things that I said on there was again, beekeeping is beekeeping. It doesn't matter what the container is, what you put it in, but it also doesn't matter what everybody around you does. If mm -hmm. your passion is to do X type of hive, then follow your passion and do that type of hive and use these online resources that we've talked about to find individuals who may not be in your county or your state who can give you the education and experience that you need. And then you can still follow that passion. You're not required to do what everybody around you does just because that's what they do, because that's the same concept as the fifth generation beekeeper saying, well, just because that's because it's how it's always been. Well, and I would go a little further with that is that um, you you need to understand that um, because these people cannot do, you know, sp specific ways to keep bees. There's there's also something that I, you got to be careful, even with apprenticeships and people that are teaching all kinds of classes and all stuff. If they're solely focusing on one style of hive, there is often an ulterior motive, a financial motive behind it because they might potentially sell only that type of equipment that's true or, yeah so keep that in mind because you you know people will not always tell you what's uh what's what's you know they're not necessarily objective right you're not going to hear very often the objective truth all hive types have different uh, pros and cons yep. you just need to be aware of them and the pros and cons that are listed out there in the ethernet or whatever and a lot of the times repeated by the people that are teaching they're not objective. They've been based on the commercial beekeeping, whatever style of things, and they are not going to be knowledgeable of the other styles. And they're just going to poo-poo all over there and not be objective. So keep that in mind as well. If you are looking for objective information on the pros and cons of each hives, uh, you can talk to John and, uh, and Les Crowder and I, although we're a little biased with the top bar hives, but we can tell you why and what the pros and cons are and what the pros and cons of the Langstroth be, um, boxes are and all the other ones. Yeah. Yeah. There's um, like, if you narrowed it down just between Langstroth and top bar, I have a presentation that is Langstroth versus top bar, like how to choose your hive how style. Yeah. And throughout the entire presentation, 
um, you're, you're hearing the benefits and you're hearing the negative aspects of both the styles. And every time, every time we go over a new point, I stop and I say, if you're in it for this, this is the option for you. If you're in it for that, that's the option for you. And then we go through another point and I say, okay, now, now with this information, if you have these disabilities or drawbacks or handicaps, well, then this is the right course, you know, like, but every way through it, all I'm doing is giving you the information and telling you, you choose what is your main goal? Is your main goal honey production? Is it wax production? Is it just the ethical keeping of bees? Is it, you know, having multiple colonies, like whatever it is, is it a, do you have financial concerns? Do you have physical limitations? You know, all of these things have to be considered. And then you, not me, you make the decision about what you want to do. I would say there's one myth that I have to bust is that people, when they compare Langstroth and Tabarhais, very often will tell you, if you're in it for honey production, then you should go Langstroth. A Tabar hive produces just as much honey as a Langstroth. Like you said, it's not dependent on the box style. It's based on the uh, space available, the forage available, and your management of the box. If you harvest honey on a regular basis in a Tabar, yes, this space is finite, but you can take out that honey. You don't have any equipment to store and all that stuff, and they're going to produce just as much as they do in a in a Langstroth. Yep. Now, if you feed them heavily and you you just stuff them like geese, um, they're gonna yeah they're gonna behave like commercial <laughs> yeah foie gras anybody. Uh, then you're gonna have <laughs> you're laughing. Well, I, was you're like, have- I was like Thanksgiving and Christmas are coming up, everybody. Yeah. This is your prelude to to your yeah. your turkey dinner or your cooked goose. Exactly. <laughs> well you're going to have a different production of resources, whether it's bees or honey. And, but if you do it in a Langstroth and you do the same thing in a top bar, you're going to have the exact same amount of production of honey. I would go further and say in that Les Crowder who has kept top bar hives for the last 30 years in numbers that are astronomical will tell you, you can sometimes actually produce more honey in a top bar hive than you do in a Langstroth because of the way it's managed. Mm-hmm. It's just that people are not as familiar with it. They right. will repeat those myths. It's the it's the techniques that are used and, yes. and the, the beekeeping that you practice that exactly. gives you your outcomes because you can you cannot feed them when they're starving and therefore they yes. dwindle and they're not big enough to get you a honey harvest yeah. and it didn't have anything to do with the container they were in. But you then know, potentially in the spring, you can, they'll you can explode. Overfeed them. Yeah, but yeah exactly. you, can, you can also overfeed them and they still don't grow because they have no open available cells to right. continue expanding by laying new eggs right. and brood and things like that. So um, obviously everything that we do has some sort of effect on them, um, certainly. Yes. So yeah. all good points. Very true. I, uh, yeah. Um, I'll have to go well, back and, and cut out our original. Thanks for joining us. And we'll add a new one on here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, in between, because we're switching topics. <laughs> no, 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 no. Just because we like, like, you know, that was great. I, I didn't even think about the fact that we completely blipped out master beekeeping entirely. Yeah. And that, okay. that just, that just went right over my head. And I was like, oh my God, that was like the obvious one. And we even talked about <laughs> it like last week when we were talking we about did. show ideas. And then when we got to the point, it was a <laughs> just gone. So well, we, we managed to get back around to it. We so did. We managed to get it back in there. So again, surprise uh, at the end of the. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It was like, and we're done. Psych. No, we're not. Uh, there's a whole other <laughs> chapter here. 
but no, for real, everybody, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for tuning in to these beekeeper chats with Natalie and I, and hopefully this one goes through and, and helps you learn how to disseminate some of that white noise and static that's out there everywhere and, and find the true source of information that speaks to you and your beekeeping practices. And uh, we hope that it does you the best on your journey. We also hope to see you again next week. Yes, or or hear you again next week or you hear us because if I can hear you that that could be questionable about if I'm hearing voices so um. <laughs> <laughs> so many questions so many questions and they all may be true um, anyhow thank you everybody be good be mindful <laughs> bye 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 this Hive Jive production was made possible by amazing patrons like you and we appreciate your support. To all our Hive Jive junkies out there, you truly are the bee's knees. <laughs>